Monitoring a Heartbeat in Mercer's Hospital Dublin, 1983 and Mercer's Hospital 250 years ago. Whereas Mary Mercer of the city of Dublin, spinster, being piously and charitably inclined to build at her own charge a house for the reception of 20 poor girls or other poor persons, proposed to build the same in the parish of St. Peter's in the suburbs of the city of Dublin, provided the said parish would set out to the said Mary... The founding of Mary Mercer's legacy, a home for girls on a site that had once housed lepers and was once a churchyard. That was 259 years ago, and ten years later... She, the said Mary, by the advice and approbation of the said minister, church wardens and parishioners, was disposed to settle and convert the said stone house or messuage for the accommodation and use of such poor persons as may happen to labour under diseases of tedious and hazardous cure, such as the falling sickness, lunacy, leprosy, and such other diseased or infirm poor persons as the trustees named by her, and such other trustees as should from time to time be Thus, Mercer's Hospital was founded with ten beds in 1734. And there, strangely enough, ends the story of Mary Mercer, and the hospital which has borne her name for almost 250 years. She died in 1735, the year after the hospital opened, and left not a penny of her £6,000 fortune to the hospital. The bulk of her fortune went to um, found a hospital, uh, r uh, rather it went to found um, a school for girls, M Mercer's School for Girls, which was in Castle Lock. Um, so the governors were, were left to um, find the monies. And find them they did, largely through benefit concerts and musical evenings. But of course the most important association is with the Messiah. <laughs> And from that first performance of Messiah, Mercer's got £127. The lottery was a, a regular thing. And then, of course, there were other um, ways. Uh, the uh, St. Helen's Fate, a raffle for a black pig. And then there was uh, Lady Wheeler's ingenious Mile of Half Crowns. What was the status of Mercer's at the time? It was one of the first of the of the voluntary hospitals um, the first in Dublin was um, a charitable infirm infirmary and the second was um, Dr. Stevens Hospital 
now Mercer's was the third. Medical historian Professor J.B. Lyons. In the year 1736, uh, the ladies who worked here were known as nurse keepers. Uh, they weren't qualified nurses as such. In actual fact, the ladies who were employed were women of low character because they regarded uh, nursing the sick as a humiliating condition. And in 1738, this nurse keeper blotted her copybook and it was ordered... That Alice McCann be carried before the Lord Mayor to be punished for seducing the patients in the house and that she be discharged the service of the house. And she was given 18 shillings and sixpence for her troubles. But she wasn't the only one to break the rules. In 1739... A great quantity of medicines and drugs belonging to the house were stolen with a large quantity of old linen by James Dunn and Eleanor Ware, who have made their escape and absconded to avoid due punishment. It be an instruction to the surgeons not to appoint any nurse for this hospital under the age of 40 years. The matron at the time was bound by certain conditions. To have no followers and be able to read and write and to see that the beds are filled with fresh straw every two months and that each bed be provided with clean sheets every month or oftener if required and to see that each nurse do return the foul sheets for the clean ones and to see that the nurses keep their wards clean and the sick and maimed committed to their care clean to see that the bandages be washed and made clean against the time the surgeons come to dress their patients. And all for eight pounds a year. In 1794, the governors issued this ultimatum. Ordered positively that no sand for the future on any account whatever be strewed on the floor of the wards, passages, stairs, hall, etc. of this hospital, the surgery excepted. Any officer or servant transgressing this order to be dismissed. That brings us to a curious entry in the minute book of the 21st of April, 1739. Whereas by sticking candles to ye bedsteads, the beds and house are frequently in danger of being burned. Ordered that all ye marks of fire now on several of ye bedsteads be scraped off, and that every morning for ye future the housekeeper do view ye several beds, and if she finds ye mark of fire on any of ye bedsteads, that she immediately examine into ye cause or author of it, and complain to the surgeon in attendance, who is desired immediately to dismiss ye person who was discovered to do it. It was left to the clerk of the day to carry out these dismissals. Today, the administrator of Mercer's Hospital is called the Secretary. Joseph P. Little, a chartered accountant, has held the office for the past 37 years and is now retiring. What was it like 37 years ago? Oh, it was very different in those days. I mean, uh, the staff, especially, you know, that's particularly noticeable, the explosion in staff numbers, you know. And, uh, uh, of course, there was an addition also to the hospital in uh, 1957, I think it was. Maybe it was a bit earlier than that, 1954 possibly, when they built a nurse's home. Uh, Where were the nurses housed before that? 
and, and that they were mo some of them were housed actually in the hospital and then the old nurses home where, where, which was uh, of course very overcrowded then and it was because of the overcrowding that they uh, decided to build a new home how many patients approximately were here when you took over it's a great difference in the number of beds available uh, I think there were only been about eight beds added between the time I came and, and now. We opened an intensive care unit, uh, which was a very important thing. We had none at that time. It was a very old building. It must have had its problems, had it, trying to, to manage in a building that was really outdated long before uh, you took over. No, indeed it was, yes, yes. Were you aware uh, of the need to move on at a very early stage? Not at a very early stage, no. Uh, that was much later when uh, hospital equipment becomes much more expensive. I mean, it was obvious to everybody you couldn't be duplicating expensive equipment over a number of small hospitals. And it uh, seemed a rational thing then to, to um, have a larger institution. Money has always been a problem for hospitals. Oh, indeed it has, <laughs> yes, yes. Did you think it's strange in a way that hospitals didn't opt for the sweepstakes method of financing at the beginning? That it took them a while to sort of cotton on? Uh, yes. Uh, this hospital was the didn't participate for, I think, a couple of years after the uh, sweepstake started. Uh, of course, I wasn't here at that time. But uh, I think they were some had some moral reservations about participation in the sweepstakes. Hmm? Training for nursing as a profession only became known in Ireland in 1890. The matrons of the voluntary hospitals uh, drew up and put into practice the first nursing science course for nurses at the Royal College of Surgeons. Where would the matrons themselves have got their training? In England. A lot of them got their training. Miss um, Huxley uh, was trained in St Thomas's in um, London, and she was matron of the Ironeer, and she was actually one of the matrons who started the first nursing science school in Ireland, with assistance from the other um, matrons of the voluntary hospitals. And where was that training actually undertaken? It was undertaken at the Metropolitan School it was known as, and then it was transferred to the Royal College of Surgeons in 1900. And the students then from the voluntary hospitals attended the College of Surgeons for their lectures. And the lectures were given by the uh, Royal College, by the surgeons and physicians in the Royal College of Surgeons at that time. So nursing then acquired a real status? It did, yes. After 1919, um, the the Legislation Act was brought in between uh, England and uh, Ireland and nurses were registered under the 1919 Act, which was an Act of Parliament at Westminster. And then our own Act was brought in when on board alternates was established in 1950. Here's how one student nurse at Mercer's in 1917 got her training. We went out to lectures in... Uh in rooms beyond the Shelbourne, I don't know what you call them, I don't know what the name of the place is, for anatomy, physiology, hygiene. And then there was an exam held in the College of Surgeons. And then we had, below the College of Surgeons, there were rooms 
where we uh, had lectures for invalid cookery and uh, we had an exam there in the place at the end of the course of lectures, you know. You had to do the cooking for invalids on special diets, had you? Oh, no. No, no, no. But like if you went out private nursing or out, you know, on a district, you need to know for the pill. You'd want to know how to prescribe for a patient, you know. Cookery of a fairly basic nature was the duty of matron in 1736. To see that a cook does her duty and that she herself prepare the gruel or other preparations above the capacity of the common nurses. Even in 1917, conditions were tough for the nurses. They had to work hard. Well, she had to work hard. You, never sat. you could never be seen to sit down. Never. We didn't know how to sit down. Then you had to have the centre the centre crease in the in the counterpane was straight <laughs> between the toes of the patient at the end and just here at the chest and the clothes I often pity the patients the clothes were just right across here and there was no covering on their shoulders at all if they ruffled the bed enough to get the clothes over their shoulders oh they were lighted upon and, and made stay quiet they were like blocks of wood in the bed you know and the matron is doing a round and staff and the surgeon is doing his round and you go round tidy in bed and pulling them up and fixing them all day long. Oh, sure. I don't know. So much so that I think the patient didn't profit by their exactness and their, 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 their red tape. Too much red tape. Every, every Sunday morning, uh, you'll be doing around 12 o'clock. We, we, we had brass caddies, the surgical dressings in, you know. And you'll be in the bathroom doing the brass caddies with the, uh, oh, vim, it wasn't vim, it was a bath brick, bath brick we, we uh, shone them up with, you know, and Christchurch bells had started, so lonely here, the Christchurch bells were so clear, they always connect the two things doing those brasses on Christchurch bells. <laughs> Many famous medical men have worked in Mercer's Hospital during its long history. One of these was um, George Daunt, sometimes spoken of as Dauntless Daunt. Um, He was a genital urinary surgeon and he um, devised um, an instrument for crushing bladder stones. Another of the censors was Gustavus Hume, who uh, is remembered today for his association with Hume Street. He was a surgeon, but he also built houses on the side. And um, the third was Henry Morris. To this group, Professor Thomas Gilmartin added... We had Leonard Abrahamson, who was one of the most outstanding physicians of... um, perhaps even of this, this, this century. Uh, he was a tremendous teacher. He was a pioneer in cardiology and started his work in cardiology in Mercer's. And uh, strange to relate now, the, uh, 
he was stimulated to do the work by Sir John Lumsden, who I think procured one of the first uh, apparatus which is used, uh, what's described as a, an electrocardio, a cardiograph. He uh, was able to provide um, Leonard Abrahamson with one through some funds that were at his disposal. And um, uh, Abrahamson certainly pioneered cardiology, I think, in this country. Mercer's was then a hospital which was associated with great names, both in medicine and surgery. Uh, I instance uh, such people of international standing as, uh, well, particularly Sir William Wheeler and um, Mr. John Lumsden. He mightn't have the international name, but he was certainly one of the famous Irish doctors. He was a commissioner of the uh, St. John's Ambulance Brigade, and he was probably the pioneer in industrial medicine in this country in his work at uh, St. James's Gate at Guinness Brewery. Sir William Wheeler, uh, his um, standards uh, were that of the Mayo Clinic, and indeed, it's a, a great tribute to Mercer's that it contained his ambitions. He was, um, unfortunately, he, when he was a young man, he suffered uh, an accident which resulted in him losing an eye, and um, that may have had an effect on his personality, that although he was a, a brilliant surgeon, he was a very irascible sort of uh, person in the theatre. To give you an example of his uh, avant-garde approach to uh, to surgery, I actually saw him, when I was a student, attempt the removal of a lung, that's a pneumonectomy. And at that time, there had been no successful pneumonectomy performed in the world that was known in the literature, known, ab uh, known about in the literature, successful one, I mean, and uh, the famous Saarbrook, who was uh, eventually Hitler's surgeon, he was probably the greatest thoracic surgeon in the world, he had attempted five of these ty this type of operation, and each patient, regrettably, died. Wheeler's, Sir William Wheeler's case, wasn't successful either, but he was prepared to uh, make an attempt in any particular uh, sphere of his work and um, uh, lead the world if necessary. Sir William de Wheeler, he was the, the bone specialist and he did very, very fine operations. You know, TB vertebrae, took out the vertebrae and, and put in a replacement from a shin bone, you know. As a physician, Sir John Lumsden was, as I say, the other notable figure in Mercer's. Uh, Sir John was a rather, um, uh, I might say, he was a very debonair person. He was impeccably dressed always, had, of course, the perfect bedside manner, but was inclined uh, towards the... Uh, a sort of P.G. Woodhouse type of uh, person 
who um, had uh, sobriquets for everybody. Wheeler, for example, so William Wheeler was uh, Billy, and uh, Senator Rollette, who was another physician, colleague of his, was um, Rowley, and I, when he deigned to, to notice me, was uh, Gilly. Gil Martin, as you know, is my name. He had an extraordinary faith in the product made in his, um, in his famous firm, Guinness, and uh, even in 1943, when he was writing about uh, what the present, the present posi- uh, the position was then in, in Guinness, uh, he talked rather about, in this sort of vein, he said that since the start of the war, they had been descri- prescribing stout at the dispensary up in uh, St. James's Gate in lieu of ordinary tonics, as drugs, he said, were in short supply. And uh, he said, I have been struck by the admirable results which we have obtained. It is cheaper than medicines and in many cases gives much better results. Uh, He was a character, wasn't he? He was, yes. He was definitely a character. Then on the other hand, we had had Senator uh, Robert J. Roulette, who... um, was so ascetic that he never owned a, a motor car and uh, he was a tremendous person in politics. Uh, he was a great philosopher, a very liberal man, a tremendous doctor. He used to be described as the doctor's doctor. Professor Thomas Gilmartin himself, now retiring after 50 years in Mercer's, was the man who revolutionised anaesthesia in Ireland by bringing the wonder drug Curare to Dublin. When I was appointed uh, to the staff as an honorary anaesthetist, uh, I realised that uh, a lot of progress was necessary in this particular field uh, uh, because the mortality was very high, was quite high, and I believe that anaesthetics might have or did contribute a good deal to the mortality. But I was particularly stimulated by the fact that um, Mr. J. H. Cooligan uh, had the prescience and indeed the courage to uh, take up thoracic uh, surgery. Very, there was um, very little uh, of that work being done in Dublin at the time. Perhaps some in Baggett Street, in the city of Dublin, the Royal City of Dublin Hospital, and some in the Mater. But it wasn't being done in any very organised or specialised way. Uh, when Mr. Cudigan took up this uh, very difficult branch of surgery, it meant that the anaesthesia had to uh, be developed. And this um, required tremendous adventures in respiration because the technique involved uh, involved in, in anaesthesia for thoracic surgery required the cessation of respiration for the time of the operation and this was a problem which um, involved the use of uh, very powerful drugs and uh, also complicated apparatus to keep the patient ventilated. This 
became simplified by the introduction of uh, a drug called Curare. And uh, this drug was being tried out in America in 1944-45. And uh, in Liverpool, by a friend of mine in Liverpool, but I didn't know that at the time, but I had read in a journal that it was being used in, to paralyze muscle in uh, certain situations. For example, uh, it was helpful in electroconvulsive therapy. And uh, I thought if we could get some and use it in thoracic anesthesia in Mercer's, uh, that it would um, help our work, uh, make our work very much simpler. And through the good offices of a, a government official who was able to, uh, who was sent on um, official business to, um, to New York, uh, he was able to literally have purloined from, in the, from the Bellevue Hospital uh, some of this curare which he brought back to Dublin and was tried in Mercer's and used for Ireland, in Ireland for the first time. Now, this uh, particular uh, drug is a relaxant, has no anesthetic effect, but relaxes muscle. And it has actually revolutionized anesthetics all over the world, made uh, modern surgery much more, uh, much easier, and um, has also, of course, reduced, helped to reduce mortality and morbidity very considerably. Not surprisingly, Mercer's Outpatients Department has had many unusual callers down through the years. Matron Anne Dunn. I can remember at one stage, this night sister, remembering a gentleman. I never really got to know him. He didn't actually come into the hospital, but he used to pass the hospital many times. And he had, um, he used to have a kilt. And I don't know where he had been one night, but he had an inflated dolphin that he was hugging. And uh, there were some youths that used to come along and they were trying to puncture the dolphin. And this was really something worth seeing. And these are the type of things that you'd see at night. Um, but of course, mind you, it can be, um, there can be sad things in the casualties at night. Um, maybe somebody having been gassed uh, brought in dead and dealing with their relatives. And this is another very sad uh, side of a hospital and um, a part that um, nurses play a big role in. Um, and of course, in, uh, hospital surroundings at night, we are also very glad at times for the help that the local police can give us, whether it be finding the next of kin of patients or in any other area. Poverty and loneliness would have been part of a city centre hospital like this too, wouldn't it? Oh, very much so. Um, I can remember one Christmas Eve night, uh, a gentleman coming in with his wife, and she had slipped. And he was a rather old gentleman, you know, the type that would have a stiff round collar with uh, a black tie and a nice coat, but it was almost tread treadbare, but um, I mean a very clean gentleman and it turned out that um, 
they had gone to church in the morning, which they weren't always able to go to because he was quite elderly, but they were able to get there that morning. But their Christmas dinner consisted of a beer and um, cheese sandwiches. And he had told me he had um, participated in uh, the Dardanelles in the First War and had been invalided back to Mercer's in 1919. So, yes, there are lonely people and people that have had quite long connections with the hospital. Now, oh, good wishes! I know this old place well. There's the door. I remember one night that we, after the hall post went on, we had to answer the accident door. I remember I was on. I came down. And of course, that's me thinking nothing of opening the door. And this old fellow brushed in past me, and he was raggedy looking, and he had long mustache and his bare feet, and he was standing on end. And he said, I can't sleep. And I ran in, and I thought to myself, the best thing to do was to get him something. I think it's 10 Astrid's, there was a place here that they kept. It's, uh, uh, weak drugs, you know. So I got a few aspirins, and I said, "You take that, you go home, and you'll sleep." And he said, "Give it to me yourself." And he opened his mouth. Oh, good gracious! Was like throwing something into a, into a volcano or something. And I said, "You'll sleep." And he snarled at me, and he said, "I haven't slept for fortnight since I left." Since I left Grange Gorman a fortnight ago, I haven't slept. And I thought I'd never get him out of the door. I closed and nearly collapsed when I got him out. <laughs> but that, I didn't come to the door again without somebody after that. 66 years later, that speaker, a former student nurse of Mercer's, searches for the stairway to the attic, known in her student days as Kate's Hole. That's it, that's it, that's it. Yes, out from the kitchen. And I remember all oh, those presses were in there at all. If you left anything in the kitchen, Kate would throw them out on the wall. You know, if you forgot something, you went in to wash something and left a cup or something that you didn't dry, Kate would throw it out after you into the wall and scream after you, oh, we're afraid of our lives. Would you like to go up Kate's hole? I'm sure it's very dirty. Oh, I want to look up at anything. Do you? Well, I'll have to get somebody to open it. Ah, never mind. No, we'll so get somebody to you unlock could go it. Out, you could go out on top and across the parapet and then say that into the dormitories on the other side, you know, in the window. Yeah. And the laundry was up there, I remember. Yeah. We went out there to dry our hair, you know. To dry your hair? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, how else would you dry it after you wash your hair? You have to go out on the roof and dry it. How indeed. And how did they find the money in those days to study nursing? Sister tutor Mary Moore. In 1917, um, to enter nursing then, it was 50 guineas, uh, which was a lot of money in that time. And um, if uh, any people who were less well off, who hadn't a lot of money at that time, would have found it very difficult to enter nursing uh, because the students in their first year uh, weren't given any salary at all. In their second year, they got six pounds, and in their twelfth in their third year, they received £12 per annum. That all was found? It. All found. 
That's right. Conditions. What did people think of the conditions of the day? Do they think they were hard done by? Oh, they worked very hard. I think they were great people. Um, their hours of work, they worked from 7.30 a.m. in the morning until 8 p.m. in the evening. Uh, they had no day off at all. Uh, they had one day off uh, per week, one half day off per week, I should say. Um, the holidays, they only had three weeks, and they could only take those at set times. And in 1917, I believe they could only take them in June, July or August. At Christmas, they didn't get any time off at all. And the night duty, they worked one month on, and then after that, they went back straight on to, ju on to day duty for two months and had to go back on to night duty again for another month. So I would think that was very hard work. There were some very uh, famous matrons, weren't there? That's correct. Uh, Miss Keane was here in 1917. Um, she um, married Sean Keating, I believe, the artist, and then Miss Burkett replaced her in 1920. Uh, Miss Burkett uh, actually uh, was a matron before Miss Keane here, and she left to go to uh, World War I and she returned with the Mons Medal, I believe, so Miss uh, Gallagher informed me. And uh, Sir John Lumsden spoke highly of Miss Burkett, and I think I should quote that he said that um, they were most fortunate in their nursing staff, and never in the history did he remember in having a better team, uh, a matron, in whom he had the greatest confidence. He had very good sisters, staff nurses, and he mentioned that he had most promising and hard-working probationers at that time. So even then, um, the staff were very, very good. Much earlier, in 1738, within a few years of the hospital's founding, the medical staff at Mercer's were looking for improvements. They wanted a bath and a fluxing room. The following year, 1739, the trustees found a spot of ground adjoining the hospital and a new wing was built, bringing the number of beds from 10 to 30. 17 years later, it was decided to rebuild the entire hospital, this time with 50 beds. And when John Howard, the philanthropist, visited Ireland in 1783, he found Mercer's fresher and more agreeable than any of the other Dublin hospitals. That was all on the same site, was it? Yes, it has remained always on the, on the same site. Um, it is the... Well, of course, Stevens is the oldest hospital on the same... on the site that it was built, but Mercer's has always been on, the, on its original site. Um, like uh, all institutions, it found itself very short of money and in 1808 it was so heavily in debt that only half the beds were in use. But um, a few years later it was able to provide a garden at the back of the hospital and then it acquired the buildings that the College of Surgeons had uh, used and so it was able to utilise those. Um, I'm not quite sure when the present um, dome was um, was uh, added. It's such a striking um, 
such a striking thing, I think, and uh, it's referred to by Oliver St. John Gogarty in as I went as I was going down Sackville Street, where he writes, "West against the sunset, the roofs of Mercers shone," which I think is a, a nice description of how it catches your eye from a distance. From the exterior landmark of the dome to what is Mercer's traditional timepiece dominating the entrance hall, we go on into the outpatients department. The move is on, a move that was planned many years ago. It was realised quite a long time ago, um, as certainly as far back as 1920, that um, the way medicine was and surgery were developing, that uh, it wouldn't be possible for any of the smaller hospitals to have all the facilities. And um, the disadvantages of the smaller hospitals were continually discussed. And uh, in as far back as 1920, um, Robert Rowlett, who was one of the physicians to Mercer's, proposed that there would be an amalgamation of uh, Mercer's, Dunn's, and um, the Royal City of Dublin Hospital in Bagot Street. Um, in 1939, the Minister for Local Government and Public Health agreed to set aside two and a half million as an endowment fund for this new hospital, which um, was to have 400 beds and possibly to be increased to 500 beds if a good case could be made for it. And where was it to be located? I, I'm not sure that a decision on that point had been made. Uh, it was held up, of course, by the war. That plan was overtaken by a larger one enacted in 1971 to federate the Dublin Voluntary Hospitals. It was thought that they would all go under one roof at St James's. Everything seemed set uh, when uh, what uh, might seem to be a political coup decided that um, the um, hosp that the next major hospital in Dublin should be at Bowman in North Dublin. 
and the move to St. James's was shelved once again until now. You've spoken to me about any regrets about leave, about Mercer's closing. Yes, I think that it's, uh, it's the, by the nature of things and uh, the development of uh, hospitals in Dublin, it would seem inevitable as one of the smaller hospitals in the city that it had to go, but nevertheless doesn't take away any more from the pain. I think it will be a great loss to certain parts of Dublin and uh, it'll be, a lot of people will find it very hard to pass it and say that uh, it no longer exists as a hospital. It brings back the memories, of course, of a lot of people who did so much for the um, for, 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 the, for surgery and medicine in Dublin and the country. But altogether, I feel that uh, it will be a loss to Dublin that it will be very hard to compensate for, and that certainly it will be um, uh, something which most people will regret, if for no other reason than it's... Uh, uh, it, even though they may never have been inside the buildings, will have remembered as a great Georgian landmark in the city. I would like to take this opportunity pointing out that St. James's Hospital um, is still well within the city limits and won't be any further away from the centre of the city than, say, the Matter Hospital. And we will still be a south city of Dublin Hospital. It's a very small hospital, this, 120 beds. So inevitably there has to be a kind of family atmosphere where literally everybody knows everybody else. Yes, I think this is correct. Um, the, a lot of people comment on this, the <coughs> individual patient care. But then I think this is, as you say, due to the size of the hospital, but also to the modern trend of personalising care to patients and I would hope that our staff will project this uh, in their future roles in other hospitals. Well, I think that it has uh, at all stages exemplified uh, good medicine uh, based on first-class clinical science as it developed through the ages or through the, uh, through the last two and a half centuries and that uh, allied to uh, that there was the uh, spirit of uh, charity using that in its uh, real sense and uh, that uh, medicine was applied, applied in a kind and uh, well-mannered way to the people who came to the hospital. It was small and you knew the patients and uh, there was none of the impersonality that one so often hears about. Uh, I'm not sure that that uh, is always justified. Uh, so I think uh, large institutions can be kind too, but I think certainly Mercer's has been uh, a kind and uh, well-mannered institution. But I think that if I was asked what is the outstanding thing about Mercer's that has struck me, uh, I would say it's nursing. 
Its nursing has been superb. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.